This week's episode is brought to you by the Film Rescue Show. The Film Rescue Show is a long-form podcast in which their crew and a guest fix a film every week. Want a good first episode? Check out episode 89 with Axel and myself, where he pitched fixes for the League of Extraordinary Drummond. Still waiting on that call, Warner Brothers. For fans of filmmaking, writing, and behind-the-scenes content, check out the Film Rescue Show on all your favorite podcasting sites today. Hey guys, Lord Commander Ulrich popping in here real quick to let you know that the last about 30 minutes of this episode was lost to the war. I don't know where it went. I don't know why it went. I spent about an hour trying to recover it and find it, but it's not there. And it sucks, and I'm sorry we had some real great stuff. But the rest of the episode's gold, so enjoy, listen. Hello, and welcome to Geeks of Grimdark, your home for everything Warhammer. Be they elves or Eldar, space marines or stormcast, we've got you covered. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always is... Good brother, Axel Wright. How's it going today, man? You know, it's it's okay. I have ups and downs. Down, my house flooded, and oh, no. I'm dealing with that. Up, Warhammer Fest has got me really excited because I'm a sister's player. <laughs> yeah, Warhammer Fest has been good. This has been, and we're not even done with it yet. We have more yeah. to come, but so far, I mean, the Sisters stuff, the Necron book's going to be cool. Yeah. All the Age uh, of Sigmar stuff. Oh, it's a good time to be a Warhammer fan. Damn right. Uh, down, I'm behind on my workload, like actual work, and I'm taking this kind of course that I'm behind on, so I got to stay up late to, to finish a project that is technically due six days from now, but I wanted to turn in yesterday, so I'm feeling kind of bad about that. Up. I've been working on a on a do-it-yourself magnetic case for my miniatures, and I'm almost done with it. And I could have gone like really simple, but I, you know, I'm going like wood, and I made my own shelves with like. You're an things. engineer. There's no such thing as a half measure. Well, it's not just that. It's going to be like an artistic kind of project thing because uh, my my lady is really excited to like we're going to paint it black and going to make it like sistersy, and and they're going to design the like how it looks on the back and. Yeah, and just it's it's coming along. The project's taking too long, and I'm thinking about other ways to do the next one because I got to do at least like <laughs> two more. But uh, yeah, but it's going well. So how are you? Like I said, I'm riding the high of Warhammer Week with all the cool stuff that's come out from that. Please, that, that's just please, God Emperor, let me get my hands on a Morven Vol as soon as it comes out. <laughs> I know. I like. I don't even have enough of a sister's army, but that is top of the list because that is such a sick model. I don't want to hear anything, but oh my god, that's so awesome! I've needed this yesterday. Bunch of yeah, it is funny. I I spent a little time on Reddit w w with people who were like talking about whether the Paragon war suits, you know, make sense. Like because when you read in how power armor works, it it it's fine that their feet end at the knees because they don't have to actually. It's not like stilts or whatnot, but then even the people who were like, the Paragon Warsters don't look that much, they're like, but this model, yeah, this model looks great. <laughs> so The exhaust pipes are little sisters, come on. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're not here today to talk about Warhammer Fest, but we are here today to talk about something very similar. But before we do that, I believe we have a patron sound off. 
Yeah, patrons, the people that like listening to us ramble about things so much, they're like, hey, these guys deserve money. And in exchange, we give them all sorts of benefits, and we say their names on the podcast. They are Pam Galley, Marky, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin Vay, Brendan Agnew, John Phillips, Kit, Kenny, Seth Decker, Jesse Johnson, and Donald Lucy. Now, if you'd like to join that illustrious legion, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Geeks with Shields. 25 cents an episode means that you get access, early access to all our episodes, and we get to keep doing this podcast week to week. So... As this is a Geeks of Grimdark, as always, we are joined by a guest, and we are joined by someone who's rapidly becoming a re- recurring guest and friend of ours, Lore Master of Sotek. Hey guys, how's it going? Last time we had Sotek on, we were discussing uh, the end the end times of Warhammer Fantasy. And if uh, before we can get into our conversation today, where we're continuing that, Sotek, if you don't mind giving us the even more so brief overview of what we've discussed so far. I believe last time we essentially discussed the narrative behind it, which the the big TLDR was essentially that Warhammer Fantasy reached kind of an, a lore impasse, and they kind of wanted to try and make something new. So they unleashed a series of events, some of which were good, most of which were bad, and they... Remember a, a elf that was... Like an evil Sauron character because yeah, he got we burned went, in we went, fire, but they end up retconning everything about him. <laughs> yeah, we went very in-depth on Malekith's story as an example. There were many stories like that, uh, many narratives that were set up and ended up not being resolved. It was basically like going into a Chekhov's gun gallery, but only like two of them fired. <laughs> and ultimately, it was a massive failure in some ways, a great success in others. And in its from its from its ashes and ruination uh, was birthed Age of Sigmar, which started off very very rough, but eventually turned into something beautiful on its own. And that was kind of the, remember... the the big thing we started with. And if I remember correctly, the actual end times event, the end quote unquote of Warhammer Fantasy, involved essentially a giant uh, warp portal opening in the world and and destroying everything except for a god character named Sigmar who. Holds on to the core or something. And flies off into space. Something like that, yes. That, that it, it's a yes. We'll just we'll just go with um, that's an oversimplification, but yes. Go listen to the last episode. We I don't think we got in depth because there's still a lot to cover, which is why we're doing part two. But the bullet points are there and you can hear Sotek rage and us just groan and go, They really did that? And Sotek go, Yeah, they did. Yeah, I remember there was, I do remember very specifically one thing you brought up, which is a demon showing up at the end times that Kabanda. is a specific character. What what was the name again? Kabanda. Kabanda, that's right, who is a 40k character who had no business showing up in the end narrative of fantasy. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, go listen to that, then come back here and catch up the rest, because we're going to kind of go more the nitty gritty real stuff. And the first, well, I want to, I want to get a little bit more lore just because okay. we're talking about end times. And I know that like, like we said, we joked about Sigmar, this guy holding on to the core. And I still don't really have a great idea of who Sigmar himself is and how the end times of fantasy lead to age of Sigmar from a narrative perspective. We can talk about it in the real perspective afterwards, but I'm just kind of like cap off what I feel like is the story if you don't mind, Sotek. Yeah, uh, I think that's a fairly simple thing to wrap up, actually. So Sigmar, in in a sense, you can kind of think of Sigmar as the main character of Warhammer Fantasy, if you look at it from, like, a very broad perspective. 
like the setting Warhammer. So like, like before 40k existed, before anything existed, and Games Workshop gave its first idea, Warhammer refers to Sigmar because Sigmar wields a Warhammer called Galmaraz. And that is the signature oh. weapon that all of Warhammer Fantasy and 40K and everything that came afterwards is named after. No idea. Uh, there, I already learned something. <laughs> yeah, he's he's essentially the Jesus figure of Warhammer Fantasy, except for if Jesus beat everyone to death instead of trying to be nice about it. Um, you know, like the the timeline of the Warhammer Fantasy universe is literally told from a perspective of when Sigmar was born. So, like, you have a timeline of negatives, which is before Sigmar, and it leads up to the birth of Sigmar, which is then year zero, and then everything past that is after Sigmar. So um, the Jesus allegory is pretty bold. <laughs> yeah, and he he was a man who... it's There's some complicatedness to it, but the long story short is that he was a barbarian man born into the more tribal barbarian times of the Empire, kind of like a, almost like a Conan the Barbarian figure, and though not nearly as brutal. Um, and he was a very wise, willful, and strong man who, despite just being a man, though he did, of course, have one of the most powerful artifacts in Warhammer Fantasy, which is Galmaraz, he did the impossible and faced some of the biggest baddies in the Warhammer Fantasy universe and just kept coming out on top. Um, and he established the empire. So he founds the empire. He's the first emperor. Um, and he founds the empire. And then when he grows old, he decides to um, set down his crown, walk away. And he goes into the mountains to go visit his friend, hiking, one of the hiking Kurgan Ironbeard. He's the one that gave him Galmaraz. Because Galmaraz was originally a dwarf artifact forged by the ancestor gods that Kurgan Ironbeard gave to Sigmar as a gift when Sigmar saved his life. Um, so he established the friendship between humanity and the, the dwarves. He's the one that founded the Empire. He's the one that killed the first ever chosen uh, Morkar the Uniter. He's the one that defeated Krell, the undead lord, in personal combat. He's the one that defeated Nagash, the great necromancer, in one-on-one -on -one combat. He fought... Correct in me if I'm wrong. Hold on real quick. Nagash such an important character that he actually was a key player in end times, right? Mm -hmm. okay. Yes. So him and Sigmar had a few amusing conversations being that they were once terrible enemies. Um, you know, and Sigmar founded just a lot of what we understand as Warhammer fantasy when you are caring about the human aspects. Um, and after he left, the people of the empire began to worship him as a God and so he ends up being the man who ascended to godhood. Um, so, like, if you're really familiar with the Elder Scrolls lore, I believe there's a similar character there. He's Tiber uh, Septim, who became Talos. If I'm right. right. Uh, except for, I don't know when the Elder Scrolls lore started, but Sigmar popped up somewhere in the 80s. Um, early 80s. But... Uh, I don't know when but, Arena came out, so... But anyway. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, Sigmar was worshipped as a god, and the Empire... And for the Empire, he was their primary god... And he was a war god, but he was also the god of, like, unifying humanity, standing against the darkness, you know, uh, fighting in battle, nobly, yada, yada, yada. And um, the end times, one of the very bizarre things they chose to do, which was stupid from a perspective of ending Warhammer Fantasy, but made sense in... We talked about this, that the end times wasn't really about ending fantasy, it was about setting up Age of Sigmar. And so during Age of Sigmar, Sigmar comes back. 
So instead of being like a distant god, even though he had a mortal incarnation in the end times, which was this guy named, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name. But there was this kid that was essentially his mortal reincarnation for when the Empire needed him most. That guy dies fighting Archeon the Everchosen. Archeon doesn't get the killing blow on him. Someone else does, much to Archeon's rage. But he, when he dies, or a little bit before he dies, Sigmar returns to the world as a god, but he takes over the body of Karl Franz, who dies during book two of the End Times out of five, um, which was very bizarre, uh, because you don't realize it's Sigmar until later. And then in book five, which is the last book, he reveals himself to actually be Sigmar, that he was just pretending to be Karl Franz. Why? Like, they kind of explain that he was, like, masquerading as a loyal subject of himself because he didn't want to, like, make people panic, but it still comes off really weird <laughs> and kind of, like, skeevy um, that he was pretending mm -hmm. to be somebody else. But he, when he finally gets Galmaraz back because it was lost for a few books... He powers up into full form. He battles Archeon in the grand finale of the end times. And he beats Archeon. But unfortunately, by that point, it's essentially already too late. And the world ends up blowing up anyway. And Sigmar is the only... Sigmar is the only survivor that matters. There were other survivors. Um, but Sigmar falls to the center of the earth due to some shenanigans I'm not going to get into. Real and, quick, how does how does Sigmar play into that whole we're the elves who have been watching this cycle that's the exact same thing happen over and over again? He doesn't. Ignore that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Pretend, pretend that's not a thing and your life will be easier. Because like Games Workshop asked that. <laughs> yeah, Games Workshop tried to establish that, but it does it doesn't make any goddamn sense. Um like I, I have literally sat down and tried to math it out so many times and it just doesn't work, so I just tell people it's not canon. Uh, even though Games Workshop it, it's a whole thing. Anyway. Um, Sigmar, uh, so Sigmar falls into the center of the earth at some point and he clutches onto the core of the planet, which gets fired off into space like a rocket when the uh, world explodes and he is essentially dead. Like he's dead for all intents and purposes. Um, but he gets resurrected or awakened in quotation marks by Dracothian, who is a big god thing in a giant celestial dragon so like imagine a dragon but it's literally so big that it's made out of constellations it's a living constellation no it's that an can, like, being yeah yeah that can move around the heavens and do whatever it wants but it's a very nice one Dracothian's very kind um and very empathetic empathy is actually probably one of his strongest features um and Dracothian awakens sigmar sensing him to kind of be a kindred spirit of sorts and helps Sigmar make it to the mortal realms where Sigmar then explores the mortal realms and sets up a new pantheon of gods, which are made from the world that was being that he goes to the realm of death where he finds Nagash. He goes to the realm of life where he finds Alariel. He goes to the realm of light where he finds Tyrion and Teclis. He goes to the realm of shadow where he finds Malarian and Morthy. He goes to the realm of beasts where he finds Gorka Morka. And he goes to the realm of metal where he finds uh, Grugni, the, go the dwarf god of metal, and Grimnir, the dwarf god of fire. Um, and so he kind of like gets a super squad together of gods to try and make the mortal realms into what they consider a paradise. But, you know, problems happen, chaos shows up, chaos wrecks shit. And essentially, the, th the thing about the mortal realms that confuse people and why it's called Age of Sigmar is there have been three ages already. 
or we're in the third age of the mortal realms. The first realm was the age of myth, which is like everything back in ye olden days, including Sigmar discovering mm. the mortal realms and all the gods waking up and building magical, wonderful empires and awe-inspiring cities and accomplishing all these crazy things. Um, but most people have forgotten what happens, which is why it's called the age of myth, because it's very mysterious. Then there's the age of chaos, which is essentially the end times 2.0. So it's chaos breaks into the mortal realms. They unleash Archaon to lead their legions into battle and um, do the they corrupted the mortal realms from without by whispering into people's ears and getting them to do stupid shit that eventually summoned chaos. And chaos beats the crap out of everybody. The pantheon of Sigmar falls apart. Well, I feel like I missed something that must have happened in the first age, which is like if the planet that was Fort Fantasy straight up exploded, and I heard mortal realms include like things of like death and whatnot. What is the Oh, I guess for yeah, new good planet. <laughs> okay, so when the Warhammer Fantasy World blew up, it like it 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 imploded. So it was like everything got sucked in on itself and like devoured by the realm of chaos. The gods had their way with it, and once they were bored with it, it got like super condensed and then it exploded like a supernova, right? And threw all that good nastiness out of the space. Um, but because chaos is naturally magic. And magic was a core fundamental aspect of the world that was when all this goodness scattered across the cosmos, instead of being like stardust, it was essentially just like tons and tons and tons of magic. And over the course of thousands, maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, we have no idea, maybe millions of years, all of this magic started to gather together. And for magic, like attracts like, like attracts like. So anything that was resonating with death magic gathered together. Anything that was resonating with life magic gathered together. And they all gathered together and condensed and got bigger and bigger and bigger. And they got so big that gravity started to have an effect and all this stuff. And they started smashing. Uh, and they formed into these planes of existence. These little, these big orbs, you can think of them, um, that are known as the mortal realms. And the mortal realms are kind of like each one is almost like its own reality where it has its own rules and laws, but there are all I, these. I mean this, I mean this in the most positive complimentary way possible. That sounds a lot like the forgotten realms. Yes. And that there's likely, I mean, what is Warhammer if not stealing ideas from other ideas? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And um, so, and there are gateways connecting all these different realms that, somehow were created by the old ones, but they've kind of hand-waved that and say, try not to think about it. But, um, so all these gateways connect all these different realms and they're the way you cross. I mean, you could theoretically cross through the void, which is just space between them. Um, but to do that is really hard because, you know, it's fucking space <laughs> and there are also things out there. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Like, but, like, the realm of light is not only the realm of light. It acts as the sun for the other mortal realms. And, like, the some of the well, realms... What's our, what's our equivalent of Midgard, then, here? Um, there really isn't one. The, so the way the realms work is that all the realms are kind of doing their own thing, and all of them are very, very magical. There is not, like, a base realm. But they have certain laws that apply to all of them. So the biggest one is something called the uh, Perimeter Inimical, which is that all of the realms were created by magic of a certain type. And because of that, the magic is drawn kind of like it, it, it goes down through the sphere 
and then up through the center and spreads out to all the edges. So all the magic of these realms collects at the edges. So if you're at the center of a realm, you're essentially in the Midgard of that realm. It's very natural. Ah. The laws are very simple. It's stable. You can, like, and it's, you know, there are quirks. So, like, if you live in the realm of fire, then, you know, there's probably more deserts. There's intense heat. The people born there are very passionate naturally. A lot of the animals are going to have some kind of fire theme to them. Or, like, they have these weird fish that all have legs because there's not a lot of water in various places. Um, but like, you know, there's more volcanoes, there's more ash storms, um, but you can find jungles. You can find every, almost every type of terrain, but it's going to be, it's going to have peculiarities. So we have a setting then. So we have a setting where we essentially have multiple, lack of a term, multiple planets. Realms is the word, obviously, but essentially you've got a bunch of. They're much bigger than planets. Much okay. bigger. So we have, yeah, these multiple dimensions or whatever you want to call them that follow or that have different kind of base rules or maybe not rules, but like base. I want to say uh, predispositions or something because of the base yeah, of the magic. That's, that's, that they, yeah, yeah. And based the, on and the, the magic, further you get out from the center, the weirder shit gets. Until yeah, you so, get like to the very center where it's just like, if you're there, you're you're fucking dead. So, the, <laughs> because, so then, at like, the beginning of the Age of Myth. I would I would guess based on what you're saying is we have these these places coalesce and then Sigmar gets woken up by crazy star god dragon thing and he starts forming cities within multiple he of these. Exploring. Yeah, he starts exploring. Uh, yeah. He explores and he finds the other gods, all, most of which are like unconscious or sealed away somehow, and he basically busts them all out. And I feel like there, I feel like there's a good like sitcom comic moment when he finds Ganache sleeping somewhere. It's like, hey, buddy, you know what I've been doing for the last 100,000 years? Writing a comet, essentially. What have you been doing? Yeah, well... <laughs> hey, wake the fuck up. Yeah, when he when he finds Nagash, it it's one of the more interesting moments um, because he he finds Nagash entombed beneath a mountain in like a giant with like a mountain on top of him um, in a type of weird sarcophagus. There's no explanation of how Nagash got there or how any of the gods got to where they were. From the, from those gods' perspective, they just woke up, if they did wake up, and they were just there. Like, an eye blink after the end times. So, so they seem, because they were okay. the gods of those elements, they were the incarnates of those elements in fantasy, it seems that they were so, they were so inimical, so naturally a part of those magics, that when those magics coalesced and formed, they formed as a part of it. They just kind of got spat out. Yeah, that's one thing uh, I don't like about yeah, Age of Sigmar. For something that sounds like a real hand wavy explanation, that actually makes a, a a perfectly fine amount of sense to me. So, but um, yeah. And anyway, it, it, so so we have Sigmar exploring, waking up these gods in these different realms, which have coalesced from the magic. Okay, and so then that leads into the Age of Chaos, where Chaos, I guess, is invading all these realms and and, yeah, and so, screwing up everyone's days. Yeah, they're they're all the only realm Chaos does not successfully invade is the realm of Heavens. Which the realm of heavens is where Sig Sigmar is the god of heavens, and his realm does not get invaded because he shuts off all the realm gates. So he abandons the rest of the mortal realms, realizing that he can't stop chaos, and that if he doesn't shut them off uh, or co collapse or seal off all these gates, chaos is going to come to him anyway. So he chooses to seal them off and abandons everyone else to 500 years of suffering, where chaos is just having a grand old time. 
But the, and yeah, but you can argue after writing after writing on a comet for probably hundreds of thousands of years, five hundred years is like, yeah, you guys will be fine for a while. It's just a pinprick. Don't worry about it. Ah, he wasn't even awake for all that. But uh, I mean, yeah, but you're you're right. And he spends that time building an army, and this army are the Stormcast Eternals, which he builds. With- yeah, sorry, I, I, sorry to keep interrupting you. It's just I'm I'm very I'm very interested. Uh, I did read that the Stormcast Eternals thing is that they were like handcrafted by him or like hand forged by him or something they kind of are so sigmar turns to grugni who's the dwarf god of metal and says i need your help to create these super soldiers i we cannot rely on normal humans to fight chaos chaos empowers their warriors with their essence i want to do the same thing i want to steal a page from chaos's book and take a spark of my divine essence and put it into a warrior to make them divine and able to fight this war. And Grugni goes, yeah, sure, I can do that. So he creates this thing called the Amble Apotheosis, where what Sigmar does is he looks out over the mortal realms for people he thinks are good material. Whether there's someone that are like fighting to the bitter end against the hordes of chaos and defiance, or someone who is like crying out to the heavens or whatever God will listen that they will give literally anything as long as they have the chance for vengeance to someone that is like a very, very heavy worshiper of Sigmar and just calls on Sigmar to deliver them and deliver their people, yada, yada, yada. And Sigmar is steals all of these people or takes them in these like big lightning flashes. So from everyone else, don't see it as stealing. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, some do. Um, There are some of the people he takes would have preferred. He didn't when they realize later on what happens and the reason, uh, but he takes all of these heroes and they're all heroes in one way or another. Um, they may not necessarily have been fighters. You know, some of them were healers. Some of them were leaders. Some of them were politicians. Some of them were assassins. Some of them were, but people that he could see a use for. So he takes all of them and he takes their souls and strips away everything, but their soul lays it upon this anvil where the there are these demigods called the six smiths that start hammering these people's souls. And it is a agonizing process. There is a fair amount of souls that don't make it through the process. Their souls like fracture and split and they become these insane horrific things called lightning geists that have to be locked away inside of like statues or vaults never to be freed again. Or their souls just literally break apart into nothingness. But the six smiths hammer all of the mortal frailty out of them, and Sigmar crafts them with a piece of his divine essence into these super soldiers, men and women who are divinely perfectly crafted, and they're huge. They're much bigger than normal people, but they're more on par with like the warriors of chaos. You know, the big, the big ones. Um, you know, yeah. there are these like, you know, nine to ten foot tall dudes that are like, or well, I don't know if they're that big, but they're they're very large uh, compared to most humans. And they have the power of Sigmar, so they are able to go toe-to-toe. And because they're divinely forged, the biggest gimmick that Sigmar puts into them with Grugni's help is that they are eternal. They are Stormcast Eternals. In the sense that if they die, they don't just die. Instead, all everything about them, their armor, their bodies, basically breaks apart into a lightning bolt and flashes back to the Realm of Heavens, where they can then be reforged. But... There's a, there's, there's a trick. Sigmar, being the god of heavens, does not understand how to prevent death fully. So whenever you're reforged, even the first time you were, not all of you is going to make it through this process. 
So the Stormcasts have this issue where they basically have forced upon them dementia, where every time they go through a reforging, they lose a little bit more of themselves. So they might lose memories of where they came from, who their loved ones were, what their name was. Because um, when they're reforged, they're given a name. They're given a purpose. They're told what to do. And for a lot of them, when they're out there fighting and doing things, they will get flashbacks and start remembering, but not all of them. And there is a horrificness to what Sigmar has done in that sometimes they go out and they keep dying and dying and dying in these horrible wars. And some of them have died so many times that they basically become automatons. They are not human. They lose the ability to tell the difference between the minutia of what's good and bad. So you'll, there's like a, there's a storm chamber that's very, very uh, famous called like the Celestial Vindicators. And there's another one whose name I'm forgetting who they are known for being a little too overzealous. And many of them have reached this automaton type state where there's a very famous story that was printed in second edition that was very good because in first edition, the Stormcast Eternals were more just like blatant heroes and they were very boring and everyone hated them. In second edition, they released a story talking about them where they're sent down to save this village from Nurgle. So this village is in many of, is in one of the lands controlled by Nurgle because when Age of Sigmar starts, the Dark Gods own 99.99999% of the mortal realms outside of the realm of heavens. And the Age of Sigmar is when Sigmar sends out. He opens the gates of heavens and he sends out the Stormcast Eternals to invade everywhere simultaneously um, to try and re-inspire hope and take the fight to the Dark Gods. That is their job. And to find the other gods and bring them back into the fold, which some do, some don't. Yeah, but, but that, that idea of the um, the dying and and lightning bolting and coming back that sounds like another page taken from uh, <laughs> chaos. At least if if it works similarly to how I understand chaos. But anyway, sorry, continue. Similar to demons, definitely. Uh, but but um, chaos generally, when they're like brought back, they don't suffer any downsides. Because the Dark Gods have everything about them. Problem with the Stormcast is Sigmar hasn't figured out how to prevent Nagash, who is a jealous, spiteful asshole, which is why I love him. Um, Nagash really fucking hates, sorry for my language, um, when anybody takes a soul from him. And he is a greedy god. And he doesn't so like. So he takes a look at these Stormcast Eternals and is like, you literally are taking souls that are belonging oh, yeah. to me. Yes, yeah, Nagash literally calls Sigmar Sigmar Soul Thief. And they, second edition was literally about the two of them fighting. But anyway, so in second edition, they actually introduced nuance to the Stormcast and made them fascinating. I, I still don't like their aesthetic, but I like their stories because they we take a moment. We take a moment because I've heard the jokes and I've seen the boxes for Stormcast Eternals. I think they're pretty well designed. But we made a, a comment in the first one that part of what was maybe going on with the end of Warhammer Fantasy is, hey, everyone loves space marines. How do we do space marines in fantasy? And Stormcast Eternals are basically space marines. In, oh, there's no in basic it. about no, it. No, the, yeah, they were. The, the Nigh Immortal warriors of the god that are super well, strong and super tough. This is what I'm getting to, though. So, like, that's what I say. It's like the elephant in the room. We got to deal with it for a moment here. Uh, first of all, your story of how they are constructed is is interesting because, in a way, I've heard many people when describing AOS slash fantasy versus 40K point out that 40K is generally more dour, for the clear term, and that 40K has more of a claim to the idea of there's no good guys in this story, everyone's some flavor of bad guy, and that if you want something a little more quote-unquote hopeful or have someone or have factions that can be considered good guys fantasy version of it is more for you and i don't know how true that is but i've heard enough people say it that i, I feel like it is probably there's truth to it but your description of how 
the quote-unquote fantasy version of Space Marines operate seems way more depressing than how 40K Space Marines <laughs> operate. So, so I actually have a good answer for this because it's something I thought a lot about, and I realized it um, earlier this year. Um, with So I don't want to – we probably shouldn't get super into it, but we all know there's been a lot of problems in the 40K community that have been coming to light a lot over the last year. Um, there are some deep-seated issues in the 40K community and that, and so what I call Stormcast in light of how nuanced and fascinating they are and the fact that there are men and women and they can die but come back but at a price and all this stuff is that I think Stormcasts are what Games Workshop wishes Space Marines were. You are 100% right. No, I will say that now. Age of Sigmar is 100% looking at 40k and looking at fantasy going, okay, how do we not repeat the same mistakes we had before? Okay, we're going to genderize our armies and just write that in the lore. We're going to have different realms so we can have different colored, you know, we can do different races and we can go, well, they're from this realm. We're, they went and they took a lot of the big problems like, we're not going to do this again. Yeah, and the other side of that is, or like another plus and this is something that took me a long time to realize because I didn't really understand the definition of the word until like a year or two ago when I was reading about it more in depth. Fantasy was never grimdark. Um, I always thought fantasy was grimdark. It is not. Grimdark in reality is 40K, which is a setting where there is no hope, period. Like there, there could be hope on like minor scale conflicts. But if you look at the whole of 40K, everything sucks. And quite frankly, all of them probably deserve to die. <laughs> by like the way we you know determine standards. That? Looking, looking at how Games Workshop has done with uh, 40k in the last three editions, just historically, even though I'm very new and I wasn't, th I've read about it. I feel like while 40k may have invented the term grimdark, I feel like as a narrative, Games Workshop is moving 40k away from quote unquote pure grimdark. They're and, trying to, yeah. and but as I think we've all seen, they're running into problems. Because a substantial amount of their community loves that Grimdark. But the problem with Grimdark is that... The problem with Grimdark is that if you delve too heavy into it, you cannot avoid... Any writer, especially fantasy writers, which, you know, sci-fi and fantasy are the same thing. It's just a matter of, like, um, whether they do beep-boop or pew-pew. <laughs> is, that, is that ultimately, the, in my opinion... The, the ultimate failing of Grimdark is that to make Grimdark marketable, you have to make very distasteful ideas seem heroic. And you have to take certain things that are toxic or in reality very unhealthy or dangerous and make them seem noble and good. Space Marines are a very complicated subject for, I think, fans, particularly fans that maybe, say, just read the Black Library books and don't maybe necessarily have the entire history back from like the late 80s or early 90s when 40K started, mm -hmm. because to them, they read like the Horace Heresy or something, and they see the noble heroism of the Space mm -hmm. Marines, and they're like, oh, that's awesome, I want to be that, I aspire to that, without understanding the whole, the whole of the Imperium and why the Imperium and its original design that carries forward to this day and is causing a lot of problems for GW is ultimately this super fascist evil as sin, massive, horrible empire that if there it's weren't funny. literal Sorry. demons and horrifying space bugs would be the villain in any other setting. 
Yeah, it's funny. I feel like that's that part of that is why not to turn this. I don't want to turn this into a forty k discussion, but that I feel like part of that is why Robote Guillemin coming back was the decision they made because that was one of their first like, okay, if we bring back a thirty first millennium Primarch and one who was like basically, you know, a, a Boy Scout, then that's our first step towards making a version of the Imperium that, while still having all these extremely jagged edges, is moving in a quote unquote hopeful direction i mean literally as you said the definition of grimdark like fully as universal is a is without hope and gielman was like the first that is a figure of hope within the imperium for people in our real world who maybe you know like you said want to have some form of nobility i mean i play sisters of battle and i don't have no qualms about them being crazy her- zealots but i get i get the the impulse that we're talking about here so yeah, and, and you know, I will say, 40k, and this actually will tie into where we're going in a, a minute with uh, real, real ramifications, like the real world issues with the end times and what happened and all that. 40k is attempting to do what fantasy they did not attempt to do with fantasy, which is basically that they're trying to, they're trying to make a new setting out of their old setting without doing the apocalypse, and we are seeing that it's very, very hard. Um, 40k is trying to advance its narrative for the first time in nearly two decades and whole boy is it having a hard time because how do you take a setting where like the thing about fantasy that or uh sorry age of sigmar that's so strong is that they cleverly introduced a system where you can have crazy amounts of stakes without threatening the entire universe like a mortal realm being completely annihilated, that's never going to happen. They're too big. They're huge. They're colossal. They're, like, one mortal realm is so horrifically large that you could play your own campaign and do all your own stuff and have your all your own fun without ever touching or even knowing about the main narrative going on. But so because of that, the main narratives can have stake. We also have all these characters that can die and if they die, something will happen to them that is hard, and you don't want them to die because they do suffer, they feel pain, they are at risk of losing memories or gaining, like, essentially kind of mutations. Because if a Stormcast dies, yes, he can lose memories, but his soul can also be fractured in a way. So when he comes back to life, maybe, like, he is, his eyes shoot lightning, or maybe his hair has changed color, and some of them are even less subtle and kind of frightening. Like, maybe if he gets really angry, literal bolts of lightning come out of him and can potentially hurt people that are standing too close. And they examine that within the narrative, and it's fascinating. You know, with Chaos, if a Chaos champion loses in Age of Sigmar, he's probably not going to permanently die, but he could lose favor with his god. He could be chucked to the absolute bottom of the rung of the ladder and lose a lot of his glory and power. And he has to start working his way up. There's a character they've been doing that with, which is Gorgas cool. Um, like all of these different factions have these characters that can die or can suffer horrible fates. And the narrative is moving very fast. Like we're, we're almost at the end of broken realms and going into third edition for AOS. And I've been reading broken realms and like every single one of those books has major narrative events that are such a big deal and are so fun and well-written. I genuinely have gasped in shock reading them. I've genuinely cried reading them. Um, There's been a lot of beautiful callbacks to certain fantasy themes, but there's been so many payoffs where all these things that they've set up in the army books, they actually happen and we get to see what the fruition of that is. 
In fantasy and 40K, that's a non-existent thing. Almost always. Like, the narratives didn't, they couldn't move. They were chained up trying exactly. to get, move forward. It's funny because that's exactly what you're talking about because that's you can you can see Games Workshop starting to implement that kind of stuff with 40k even with things just simply as the 13th Black Crusade and the fall of Cadia is an example of like all right we're moving a narrative forward we're making drastic changes to to things and the entire the entire Indominus Crusade the Return of the Silent King these are things that are like they're what I think of when you're talking about like what's going on in AOS because I don't know those events yet, but I can see. And yes, I you know there's that whole idea of like how it's difficult, especially when you've got a you know ingrained audience already. But yeah, I, that's interesting. I had not thought about that because I didn't know enough about AOS. But that idea that they're trying to basically apply the same kind of principle, but in a more granular, slower kind of way rather than just etch a sketch it <laughs> so. yeah and it's and it's they're trying to figure it out and it's bumpy i mean 40k has literally already gone through a retcon where they released the you know um they started y'all off in eighth edition and eighth edition initially started as the undomitus crusade happened and now it's already over like we're skipping ahead a whole bunch of years and it caused a massive problem because it didn't make sense within the books they had written so well, they actually they realized it was a great opportunity to tell stories and they went wait a second why did we skip that that's a yeah, big so, canvas to play yeah in. they had to go back and fix it um like y'all are literally getting a 40k is literally getting a re-release of their big indomitus black library book to fix the lore issues because they skipped ahead too far which yeah, i'm glad they're doing to i think i think that was yeah. the right so, decision I think it's funny that this all jumps off this idea, again, of Stormcast Eternals. Because when before I got into AOS, when I first started getting into 40K, my friends who were already into these kind of things were talking to me. And we made all the jokes about Stormcast Eternals just being space marines in in a fantasy setting. But I, you know, listening to you talk and learning more about, you know, the setting, I can see, like, the very important differences and see the, you know, the positives. And, and we, so to circle back real quick. So the actual narrative, what we've come to, the Age of Sigmar, the third age of this new setting, we've got all these realms mostly overrun by chaos still, but we've got these pockets of these factions within these various realms, like, oh, the I'm guessing the vampires and skeleton stuff are in the realm of death with the gash above them, and I don't skate, probably that's why you have armies of destruction and things like that, I've, I've looked at the Games Workshop page for it a bit, so, and the age started because Sigmar opened up the gates of heaven, so now we've got a lot more, you've got the forces of heaven, quote unquote, fighting chaos on all fronts, while all these other factions are vying for their own personal power, their own personal reasons. I've heard that the Skaven, for instance, are very big on like wanting to resurrect some crazy pestilence god. So, uh, so that's our our setting for AOS. That brings us to the quote unquote result of end times. Is that a, a correct statement? Yes, I, I think I think that is a. I think that's a successful interpretation. Yes. Okay, so then if that's the case, then we can move a little more. This is my this is how my brain works. I have to cap off one thing before I start there because I didn't expect the the space ring comparison to jump us off into <laughs> what is the next part of the conversation. Oh yeah, that you could literally so. I could I could talk for hours about Age of Sigmar and its relationship to 40k because it's very very fascinating. We have well, an episode no. planned along those lines, so we may bring you back for that. Oh, fair enough. Okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> always scheming, always planning. All right. Well, then, if we call that, if we if we call that the our narrative cap of end end times as a result, this brings us now to talking about external, the external forces. We made a couple mentions about in the in the first episode about things like you know copyright and things like narrative 
corners and whatnot. So why don't we start off with the first and the big question, I think. And I think we already started answering that, which is why I want to put it on the table. And uh, this goes straight to you, uh, Sotek. Do they really have to end Warhammer Fantasy to begin Age of Sigmar? We talked about, you literally talked about how they seem to be trying to do the same kind of thing with 40K without an apocalyptic overwriting. So do you think that going about it the way they did was, for lack of a better term, necessary? No. I I do not think Warhammer had to die to get us to Age of Sigmar. However, I think in retrospect, I am happy things played out the way they did because of where we are now. Yeah, I can agree so with you can that. See, you can see them trying to do what they're doing with 40K, and then the question would be, I guess if they didn't kill Fantasy they would probably be doing with Warhammer Fantasy what they're currently doing with 40K. And I'm guessing they would probably be dealing with the same kind of trouble, but on two fronts instead of just one front. Yeah, and well, and I will say that I, you know, I don't know if I would go so far as to say the end time should have been avoided, like the the end of fantasy. But what I can say with 100% confidence is that they could have handled it and done it more and done it better to like, they did such a garbage job with it. And that was unnecessary. They could have well, done that, a great job with it. I mean, that's a, a very natural follow-up question, which is if, I mean, I'm giving you the power right now. Literally, this is a theoretical, right? How would you have fixed end times? <laughs> that's like, like I'll, uh, if I ever publish a novel, that's probably <laughs> the first thing I would write. But because it would take that much effort. But I will say this. The biggest thing that Games Workshop did that was a huge slap in the face to everybody was that they put a lot of effort into the first book and then realized how much effort it was going to take to wrap up the story they started telling and they gave up. They they completely gave up on it and just started trying to wrap up the story. But... It wasn't coordinated. There was no, there was no like counsel or attempt to keep authors on the same page. There was no attempt to make sure that someone, that an author in one book who set up a narrative line would have that narrative line resolved in the next book. There was no one making sure that the people that wrote the black library books that accompanied the big books that explained the overall narrative were on the same page. They had completely different events occurring. It was a complete cash grab travesty. And that was a, the, the biggest thing they could have done to fix it without like completely killing themselves would have been just to make sure everyone was on the same damn page because nobody knew what each other was doing and authors were doing a lot of really stupid, cheeky stuff um, and like writing a lot of self-references and, you know, some were inserting 40K things because they just liked it and they thought it'd be fun. And like I've heard uh, I've heard rumors that supposedly some Grey Knight, I think we talked about this before, some Grey Knight might have shown up in the end. Yeah, it may not Straight be Caldor Drago. Drago. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in the opinion it's 100% Caldor Drago, but that just makes sense to me. Yeah, so like you have Caldor Drago essentially showing up, which it seems Games Workshop has attempted to explain away that as being something else, but that was t- I, don't I agree buy it. that's like, Bander I, thing I, tips yeah, I, it I, way too much. Yeah, I, I, it was one hundred percent planned. 
Yeah, so, like, you have Caldor Drago showing up for no reason. You have a moment where the Skaven get a hold of a piece of Lizardman technology and apparently reach out to the Eldar. You have Kabanda showing up. Just, like, all these absolutely ridiculous things that don't help the narrative at all. They're there as, like, they're there as Easter eggs, even though two of them, the Caldor Drago incident and the Kabanda incident, were massive story things. But you had authors not giving a damn about how they were treating the property. They were just told, I need you to get us from point A to point B, do whatever it takes to make that happen. Let's and wrap so, this up. We got a deadline to get to. Yeah, like we need to get Age of Sigmar out by X. So do whatever you need to do to make that happen. And so you had authors. May I ask? Sure. I was going to ask if uh, if you've done any um, research into like interviews or any knowledge of like what actually was going on behind the scenes, behind the curtains during this. I've had conversations with um, a few individuals that were very, very close to being behind the scenes on many of those things. And the, the basic premise is that the, the biggest way I can explain it as like an overarching bubble is that when games workshop made the first book, they tried very hard and they successfully released Nagash and what caught them really off guard was how successful it was. They were expecting, they did a lot of hype for the end times, but because of how lackluster sales for fantasy had become, they were really expecting it to maybe get like a small blip, maybe be a little interesting. What they didn't expect was for everything about it to sell out, which it did. Like people were voracious for this. Like the narrative was moving for the first time for fantasy or 40K in like a decade and a half. And people were losing their damn minds over it. And all of a sudden, they, I think in that moment, they started to realize they had, or, or not I think, I know that they they bit off more than they could chew. Um, well, yeah, wrapping a narrative for as big as it is that culminates in an end. Because you said it before, that's like one of the biggest things. There's so many hanging plot threads. And so many bits like, okay, that would have been cool if it made any sense how you got there, but you just kind of skipped steps A through B, uh, you know, E, and jumped straight to Z. Yeah, and we have to, you have to put everything in the context of what Games Workshop was like at the time. Games Workshop that initiated the end times was the Games Workshop led by the, the man who said that Games Workshop was a model company. And not like he did, like he, you know, he came out and publicly stated... We are a company that makes models. Yeah, we and, talked a bit about this last time, how Games yeah. Workshop at the time was, was... Well, let's just put it this way. From what we can tell, regardless of the blunders in the last couple of years, the people working there now seem to at least have a better understanding of the breadth of their fan base's interest <laughs> than yeah. they did back then. Yeah, like the... And all they cared about was money. And when the end time started to make money, they... Things just got horribly rushed and it was very, very disorganized because they just didn't care. And they did not want to take the time they needed to take, nor did they want to pay people the money they needed to pay people to get where they wanted to go. And the biggest thing was that you had authors basically getting browbeat and being told, I don't care what has to happen. I don't care what steps we need to skip. I don't care what little research we need to do. 
I need this book out here because I've got these models I've got to sell. I've got this thing I've got to do. We've got to have this setting up, wrapped up and done by this date. I don't give a damn what happens. All I know is that we got to get here. And that way we could be ready for what comes next. Ironically, they could have milked this forever with, you know, one book a year. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, up. the end time should have been like a Horus Heresy level event. They could have made like, so much money looking back on it. Yeah, but th- that would, that's, like... that's looking from a long-term perspective, which was not their strong suit. They cared no. about the short-term perspective. Hooray, capitalism. Sounds like, in your estimation, largely a failure of execution and expectation. And that, I think, is really important. But I do think one question that it uh, well, that maybe we skipped over, we talked a bit about cause before. We, I mentioned at the beginning of this recording, we talked a bit about copyright and like narrative kind of corners. But Ulrich has provided us with a trendy little list here of other reasons that have been rumored are uh, the big reasons for the death of fantasy. And I would love to hear your take on them. Among them, he has listed too big an initial buy-in, which seems like an odd one for me considering I'm a 40K player and I'm starting an AOS army as well. The rules were too dense and hard to understand. That also seems like an odd one for me because I've heard that 7th edition 40K had the same problem. Oh, God, 7th is a nightmare. Yeah, we talked about the copyright question, like why they now have words like Astartes instead of Space Marines. Uh, declining sales, which you yourself, Subtech, have mentioned a couple times why they had lower expectations for end times. And then, of course, the idea of the, the narrative corner. So uh, wh- what do you think about these these ideas? Um, so I, I think nearly all of them are correct. Um, however, a lot of people... W- one thing that happens... Mm, okay, let's take this point by point, and then I can deal with that one when I get to it. Too big an initial buy-in? Absolutely correct. Um, you do not understand how expensive fantasy was buy into fantasy and to play a game without borrowing something from someone you had to buy the big the the big rule book the big rule book easily would run you somewhere between 80 to 100 dollars um once you and they did eventually release like a little rule book but even that was like 40 bucks and it cut out all the fluff and everything it was just a tiny book but it was still dense as hell and just full of rules that was to get the big red book which was the core rule book. Then you had to get your personal army book, which in 8th edition, Games Workshop decided that instead of charging $20 for a book that was softback and black and white, they realized they could charge much more if they made them hardback and had color. So they charged $50 for a rule book. So you're already you're already down somewhere in the ballpark of 120 to 150 bucks. You don't have any models yet. So now you need to start collecting the models. The problem is the average game for 8th edition uh, Warhammer Fantasy was about 2,500 points. To get to 2,500 points, you would need, um, if you were running, let's say, Skaven, you would probably have somewhere between one to 200 models on the table, at least. If you were running Lizardmen, it was like, let's see, if I was running Lizardmen, I would probably have a Slon Mage Priest, uh, a unit of like 40 Temple Guard, and Temple Guard were, I believe, somewhere in the ballpark of $45 for five of them. Hey guys, 
Sorry again about that cutout, unfortunately. There's nothing I can do. So I'm adding this as a little bookend to do the plug-in bits. Uh, again, we love having Sotek on. He's a great guy to have on here. You can find him at Loremaster of Sotek on YouTube and Twitter. Great resource for all of your fantasy questions. If you are the first time listening to us here, thank you. You can find us on all of the podcasting platforms at Geeks with Shields, as well as on Twitter at Geeks with Shields. Have a good one.